I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek, and this week we are going to be traveling to Côte d'Ivoire, finding my way to the offices of the Education Ministry, which is this enormous high-rise, used to be a building representing progress, and now it's just terribly dilapidated, and it gives this kind of dystopian feel. And the smokestacks of Richmond, California. Even those without an oil refinery can learn from the example of how progressives came together, united across class and race and uh, built a united front to make their town a better place. And finally, to the less visually exciting, but certainly very intellectually stimulating, Washington Convention Center. You may have heard that the annual meeting of AWP, or the American Association of Writers and Writing Programs, happened this week. It's the writing equivalent of the Venice Biennale, except instead of wacky architecture and exhibitions, people flock to see books and magazines and writers talking to each other and about each other. And there's way fewer millions of dollars being tossed around, unfortunately. Or maybe it's more like a college fair, except the wooing is reversed and the attendees are the aspiring writers trying to dazzle agents and publishers with their manuscripts. Uh, but we managed to wade through the throng and caught up with Philip Lopate, esteemed personal essayist and the man behind Full Disclosure, one of our online blogs, to ask him a few questions about his craft. Thanks for letting me tear you away from your adoring public, Philip. Glad to be here. So I have to ask, what panels were you on? Today I was on a panel about should you use... Uh, people's real names when you're writing memoir or personal essays or should you change them and why? And what's the answer? When do you change them? Uh, you change them when, when they have enough money to buy a lawyer to sue you. <laughs> good answer, good answer. Um, so you have a long and illustrious career of writing the personal essay. In fact, some people call you the, the father of the personal essay. How do you feel about that? Uh, I, I would say I'm more like the... the the little nephew of the personal essay. <laughs> it's been going for a long time. I can't admit to being the father. I mean, you could try a paternity suit, but I don't think that I would come out guilty. <laughs> oh, did you ever think that when you started writing personal essays, you would eventually find your way onto the Internet writing a blog? I definitely didn't. I thought that blog was a dirty word, a four-letter word. But then uh, the American scholar came to me, in the form of a, an editor I had worked with in the past, very, very happily and successfully, Sue de Bos, 
And moreover, he told me he would pay me. Basically pennies, but I accepted. Good, good. And we've enjoyed having them. So what if you're, um, I guess, do you think of different topics to write for the blog and then for a personal essay? Do you approach the forms differently at all? I really think that my blogs are essays because I've been trained for so long to write essays. And so I, I, I didn't change my style to do a blog. So basically, I am using the blog as a kind of sketch pad. That is, they're short essays or mini essays. Um, and sometimes they go longer than mini. And I basically uh, start to panic about four days before I have to turn it in. And then something pops into my head. And so far, it's been, uh, it's worked. Do you have like a file cabinet of ideas that you pull stuff out of? You know, I would say I used to have a file cabinet. And last year... I sold my papers to Yale, to the Beinecke Library, at which point I cleared out my memory, uh, 36 boxes worth, and it would have been so simple to have gone into those boxes and cobbled together something, but they're gone now. I would have to travel up to New Haven to find out my random thoughts. So I've got to uh, make up new things now, and I think it's, it's a good thing because my hope is that uh, when I do my next collection of personal essays, I can use about, let's say, seven, eight, nine, ten of these blogs out of a, out of a year's worth uh, in the new collection. Well, you would not be the first columnist of ours to turn your collection to a book. William Zinzer did the same thing. Well, uh, it's really a kind of a gun up against your head, got to do something, okay, what are you thinking kind of uh, exercise. And so far, I've had a lot of fun with it. So I guess we're at AWP, and there's a lot of aspiring writers here in addition to actual published writers. Do you have any, uh, any tips for aspiring personal essayists? They're not only aspiring, but they're perspiring. Um, <laughs> but uh, to be serious for a moment, uh, the tips are to read a tremendous amount and, and to keep writing, you know. You, you, you don't actually have to uh, get an MFA, even though I make a living teaching at one. Um, but really, it's all about... Um, Putting yourself in contact with the tradition, realizing you don't have to reinvent the wheel, immersing yourself, saturating yourself with, with examples, and then uh, a good idea would be to keep a diary also. Do you keep a diary? I used to keep a diary very actively, um, but then at a certain point I started getting a lot of commissions and suddenly I didn't have the time to write my diary and also to write articles and now I have to write this blog so I don't have any time to write my diary. <laughs> so the diaries make me think a lot of this ongoing conversation in the realm of memoir and personal essays with uh, confessing versus confiding. We had a wonderful essay by Emily Fox Gordon in our magazine about that. So how do you wrestle with that dilemma? Do you wrestle with it? First let me say that Emily Fox Gordon uh, is a true friend and somebody whose work I respect a great deal as an essayist. Uh, and I read that piece, and I really liked it. I'm not sure that I can draw uh, as clear a line between confessing and confiding. And moreover, it's, it's often my practice to take a word that's used pejoratively and turn it around. So confessional seems to me not such a dirty word, and, and that a lot of personal essays and memoirs don't confess enough. That's my complaint about them. You know, they, they, They're too restricted in what they confess. I want the whole thing. You want the dirty laundry. Yeah, I want the dirty laundry. I want the clean laundry. And I want my shirts correctly ironed. In our most recent issue, Julia Lichtblau wrote us a letter from Côte d'Ivoire, where she wrote about the struggles that many girls face, especially in getting an education. 
But as she tells it, there are quite a few schools and organizations that have cropped up to get girls into the classroom. And one of them, Sainte-Marie, is a secondary school in Abidjan that she actually attended back in the 1960s when her dad was a foreign service officer. I invited Julia to the studio to talk a little bit about her experience both as a girl there and as a reporter 40 years later. And I asked her to open with a story from when she was a student and kind of a self-confessed bad one. Right after I got into Sainte-Marie, it was a very difficult school and... Um, my first year there, I went to a school, a private school, mostly for rich expats and Ivorians who were um, quite wealthy. And it wasn't, I would say, a very serious school. And I was 13, so I was not exactly at the apex of my seriousness either. And I learned to speak French very fast, very fluently, without an accent, but I couldn't write or spell. And I was way behind in all these other subjects. So at the end of the year, the boom fell, and my parents sort of woke up and suddenly had this, like, oh, my God, you know, our studious daughter has fallen by the wayside. So I studied. I was mortified. I studied all summer. We went to England on R&R at the end of the summer, and I looked the wrong way in traffic. I got hit by a motorcycle, and I broke my right arm, and I'm right-handed. Right after that, we came back, and I was supposed to take the test for said money. And actually, there was no, I wasn't enrolled in any other school, so I'm not sure <laughs> what my parents were planning on doing. And uh, the directrice, she had actually seen me walking downtown, so she confirmed that I had, in fact, broken my arm, and she agreed to give me an oral exam. And um, because I was so fluent, I managed to pass the exam, and she accepted me. But I was still completely terrified because it was such a strict school. And now I really had to perform and, you know, I really had to be able to learn and write and spell. So I guess maybe a month into school, the teacher was in charge of all the ninth grades, called me in. It was this very severe face, very thin French woman. And she called me into her office and I was just quaking. I was like, what have I done wrong? She pulled out a few sheets of papers and she said, what is your birthday? It was my birthday. <laughs> and so I said, le 18, the 18th. And she, she was very annoyed. She's like, what is wrong with this child? And she says, le 18 quoi? You know, the 18th of what? So I said, le 18 October. And she looked at me and she suddenly went, bon anniversaire, happy birthday, Julie. They called me Julie, not Julia at the time. And she threw her arms around me. And it was... It was like such an astonishing moment. I literally started to cry. And, it, you know, and it was, that's sort of what one of the things I was trying to capture in this is how this was like an extremely rigorous school, but there was this deep well of really love for the students. And that's why, I, you know, it became just an incredible educational experience. And it was really my first experience with being in very much a minority there were probably, I would say, less than 10% of European students there. And now it's different, right? Now the school is like majority Cote d'Ivoire. Complete, yeah, completely African. It's always been a school that had a very high standard. It was formed to create um, a cadre of educated Ivorian women in 1962, but over the course of the years, it's required this specific status of being an école d'excellence, and there, of which there are only five. And in a school in a country that's been, you know, was in civil war for many years, and the education system was 
very, you know, very badly damaged. The schools were damaged. The you know, children couldn't go to school. I mean, a, a school like that is absolutely prized. And so, you know, the places are pretty much kept for Ivorian girls. And what makes the these écoles d'excellence special? Why are they so rigorous? Well, the, there's a national exam to enter into sixth grade, a CCM. That's the beginning of secondary school. And um, the cutoff just to get into secondary school is 85. That's the score. And for Saint-Marie or the other École d'Excellence, it's 150. I was pretty impressed by the kinds of classes that these girls were taking. I mean, my public high school had music and dance and sports, but I definitely did not get to do poultry raising or organic gardening. Can you talk a little bit about those classes? Those sounded very, very cool. It was very cool. And in my time, we were really back in the very traditional French education, you know, or just the academics. But um, since the school has really expanded its uh, curriculum impressively, and they've built this chicken coop, which is, I have to tell you, I have never been in a chicken coop that didn't smell. This one does not smell. (laughs) <laughs> they keep it immaculate. Um, they have a whole manual. One of uh, I forget which grade it is. They study chicken raising, and they have to learn the whole process of chicken raising from baby chick health. You know, signs they have, if they have. I think it's if they have cold feet. That's a sign that they're not doing so well. They also have to learn bookkeeping so that they can manage their costs. Oh, there's a whole sort of entrepreneurial element to the training in addition to like math and French and English of right course. so that's part of the chicken raising and then they also created this grove of trees the environmental education teacher started it and trees grow so fast there yeah oh that's amazing <laughs> yeah so did you expect when you went back to Cote d'Ivoire to get immersed in this story of girls education and advocacy or was it just sort of an accident I did it was actually one of the um, one of my goals. I wanted to write about returning, but I really did think that, having been a reporter for a long time, the story about me going back to my old school is, you know, that's a nice story, but it's really not very interesting unless you put it in context. And here is this country that had gone through these immense changes, and I was there really, if, you know, in the decade after independence, and it was one of Africa's most stable countries to everyone's dismay, the country fell apart. But now they're really, there are a lot of people who are really working to put the country back together. And um, girls' education has always been an important part of that. So can you paint a picture of what life is like in Cote d'Ivoire for these girls if they don't manage to test into a school like Sainte-Marie? There are very serious barriers to girls' education. And um, when I was there on my trip in September, I talked to a lot of women who are in various capacities trying to help improve girls' education. And they painted a picture of war and tradition and just poverty as uh, limiting girls' education in multiple ways. And for one thing, everywhere there's a preference for boys in education. And boys are, you know, the resources tend to go to boys. A girl helps around the house. She gets married. The tendency is to marry girls very young, but particularly in the Muslim North. But even if there is a local school, there are a lot of factors that make conditions for girls very hard. There's, for example, there are issues of sexual abuse. There are not latrines, and especially as they get older. Also, the schools are very far for the villages. The kids have to walk sometimes six kilometers just to get to school and back. These are the kinds of things that a girl faces just to get the most basic education. Yeah, definitely. And I also love how this drive for 
better education has had an effect more broadly on the villages, especially where the parents are illiterate. They formed lending circles, um, what you call tontine, where the villagers organize funds collectively. And then there are the clubs of mothers of girl students, where illiterate moms will get together and advocate for education or get kids into schools. It makes me think that educating women is kind of the solution to everything. I think it definitely is. <laughs> women are definitely the solution to everything. Um, well, one of my most interesting uh, experiences there was finding my way to the offices of in the education ministry, which is this enormous high-rise used to be a building representing progress, and now it's just terribly dilapidated, and it gives this kind of dystopian feel. Um, you know, you go up in the elevator, and wow, if there were a fire in this building, what would happen? So I found myself in the offices of these women who have been working under these conditions, and literally all through the war, building this program of the CMF, these committees of the mothers of girl students, that's how that got started. They realized when the war would abate that it was important to get in and try to make some sort of progress. Well, how do you make inroads? This idea of using the um, the mothers as advocates and also as enlisting them as sort of the right-hand women of the director of the school to go out into the villages and take a kind of census of who was going to school and who wasn't going to school. It empowered the, the women. Many of them were illiterate. It gave them status relative to their husbands, who perhaps thought that they were just illiterate women, you know, just peasants. And then because some of these programs were, you know, there, were, there was money coming in from the UN and other international organizations, and then the women began to be encouraged to start little businesses, and it's actually caught on. And so there are lots of these women said that one of the problems now is that they're proliferating all over the place, and they have trouble even knowing exactly how many people are doing it. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's great. Well, thanks so much for sitting down and talking to me, Julia. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. So in the midst of the executive order flurries coming from the White House and the enormous changes looming on the federal level, it can be difficult to remember that there are many, many layers of government. And one of those layers is quite local, municipal, you might say. Here to talk with us is Steve Early, who's just written a book, Refinery Town, about big oil, big money, and the remaking of one such American city, Richmond, California, which up until 15 years ago was pretty much under the thumb of oil and gas executives. So what changed and who made it happen? And how is it different now? It's an instructive example for all of us, whether you live in a city or a town or a metropolis, on how when people work together on small local issues, they can have a pretty big effect. Welcome to the studio, Steve. Thanks for having me on. Could you tell us a little bit about Richmond, California, and what kind of town it is, what it was for the past hundred years or so, and what it looks like today? Well, uh, visitors to the San Francisco Bay Area Obviously, no San Francisco, Oakland, and Berkeley. A little bit further up the coast is a 110-year-old industrial city called Richmond. And uh, over the last 15 years or so, it has been uh, kind of a laboratory for innovative municipal-level public policy initiatives for making the place uh, safe for its residents, uh, more just economically and socially, and uh, uh, it's been a major center for environmental justice activism as well. 
So one of the deadlocks or obstacles to that would be a big oil company like Chevron, right? So people talk about things like being a company town. What does that look like for a city like Richmond? What does it mean for Chevron to influence the city politics? Well, I think in contemporary terms, there's lots of applications of that term. I used to live here in Washington, D.C., and people referred to it as a company town because the largest employer of the federal government was such a dominant presence and influence. Richmond fits much more into the traditional stereotype of a town with heavy industry, with a single dominant employer, uh, blue-collar workforce, and, of course, over 100 years, um, problems, uh, both with workplace safety and environmental pollution because of the nature of the production going on, in this case, oil refining. So one of the major players in the book is the Richmond Progressive Alliance, or the RPA, which sort of led the charge against Chevron and against corporate-dominated politics. Can you talk a little bit about their platform and what changes the RPA has affected while in office or outside of office? Well, the Richmond Progressive Alliance was formed about <clears throat> 15 years ago, and it describes itself as a dues-paying membership organization that's multiracial, that's working-class oriented, uh, and that uh, organizes year-round about a range of community and labor issues, environmental issues, issues involving immigrants, but also every two years fields candidates for city council and uh, the mayor's job. The founding activists, prior to getting involved in local electoral politics, tended to be focused on single issues like homelessness, environmental issues, rent control, minimum wage. And they decided that these separate single-issue campaigns could be pursued more effectively if people came together under a, a common tent and uh, started to elect some people to city government so there wouldn't just be groups on the outside agitating for reforms and changes and, and progressive policies, but some people in elected positions who could help from the inside. And that has really been the synergy over the last 15 years. Uh, progressive candidates in our local elections have won uh, 10 out of 16 races for either mayor or city council. And over the 10 years, uh, Richmond has raised the minimum wage, it's introduced by popular referendum last fall, rent regulation that rolled back rents for a year and uh, now requires landlords to have just cause before evicting their tenants. Uh, the city has uh, introduced a really innovative and effective community policing program. It's a sanctuary city going back 10 years, a stance recently reiterated in the face of the Trump administration's threat to try to deputize local police officers to conduct roundups of uh, undocumented workers. Um, the city has uh, made progress in imposing fair taxation on Chevron, its largest employer. It's embraced a whole host of, uh, of progressive reforms that I think has made life better for the uh, poor and working class people who are the majority of the population. So why do you think the RPA was successful, whereas other organizations hadn't been? Well, I think the distinctive characteristic of progressive politics in Richmond over the last 15 years is that it's organized around a principled program. People have to take the pledge, if they're going to be backed by the RPA, not to accept corporate contributions. And that right there is a big dividing line. The RPA system of running slates or teams of candidates is also very different. Uh, most politics, as you know, whether Republican or Democrat, tends to be kind of individual entrepreneurial candidacies. It doesn't build organization. It's not tied into party or movement building. 
so the RPA model is, is different in that regard. The electoral politics is tied into year-round membership organizational work. And uh, I think there was a feeling that if the politics of the group was more welcoming and ecumenical and what you call might call multi-tendency, um, the group would be more effective. And it has been effective because it's focused on building a strong community base and in recent years, uh, becoming more racially and gender and uh, generationally diverse. Passing the reins on like that to a younger, more diverse leadership has been a big problem for political organizations. We're seeing it with the Democratic Party right now, for example. And you've been involved in labor organizing for decades now. <laughs> how do you overcome that? And how has the RPA addressed that infighting among the left or among any kind of political organization? Well, let's talk about the age issue first, because uh, very definitely the labor movement in this country is often too much a gerontocracy. We have too many pale, stale, and male figures at the top who don't want to step aside, don't want to retire. I try to make a modest contribution to creating space for a younger generation of leaders in the communication workers of America by stepping down well before what used to be normal retirement age, 65. But when people hang on at the AFL-CIO or any large labor organization well beyond that age, it does not present a very positive face to a workforce that's much younger and much more diverse and really can't relate. We need, really, if we're going to rejuvenate popular organizations, whether they're unions or community groups or political parties, people willing to be mentors, to see leadership as developing uh, the capacities of other younger people to follow in their footsteps and to hand over the reins sooner rather than later and not have people be thwarted and frustrated for, for years or decades waiting in the wings for their chance to become full-fledged leaders themselves. So what happens when, for instance, a measure or a platform that the RPA advances doesn't succeed? Like the soda tax, for example, was quashed by what you call big soda. What? How do you rally from a defeat like that? Well, I think there was an assessment, first of all, of uh, the need to overhaul the Richmond Progressive Alliance for some of the longtime activists, tended to be older and white and retired, to step back, to encourage and recruit and put forward a, a new generation of, of younger leaders. And fortunately, those folks stepped forward over the last few years. We now have a, an elected steering committee that is majority female and people of color, it's much younger. And... Um, we, I think, have been more careful about what ballot measures are pursued. Uh, last year, for example, the issue of rent control proved to be very popular with the tens of thousands of lower-income black and Latino and Asian renters in Richmond. They voted two to one for the creation of rent board and rent control. And so many of the same people who had been rallied by the soda industry four years before uh, turned out to be the strongest proponents of another progressive reform rent control because it was in their direct economic interest. So as you write in the book, you were kind of one of those outsiders when you first moved to the city in 2012. What spurred your move and and why did you get involved in Richmond politics? And then I guess, why did you write this book? After I moved to Richmond five years ago, I was really struck by what people call the intersectionality of the place. You had issues of race and class uh, immigration, affordable housing, police accountability, environmental justice, issues involving big money in politics, tax fairness, uh, all in one city. So I thought it was good timing for a book that described how the progressive movement got organized in Richmond, some of its achievements and accomplishments, and some of the lessons that people could learn elsewhere. 
and also what some of the constraints are, what you still have to change at the state or federal level for cities to achieve their full potential as uh, good places to live. And what are some of those constraints? Well, one of the limitations on the ability of city government to to innovate in a place like Richmond is that uh, property taxes are assessed at uh, the county level, can't directly require businesses that make billions of dollars a year like Chevron to pay more of their fair share. Uh, a public hospital in Richmond, which many people in the community depended on, was closed recently. It was controlled by a county-level board. Richmond doesn't even control its public schools. It's part of a larger uh, county school district. So there's a number of spheres of municipal government activity that uh, other cities in other state structures really have more control over. Uh, but cities of every type, whether New York or Richmond, uh, are dependent on federal grants. They're dependent on uh state legislative support for local initiatives that they may be taking, and many of them uh, also have to interface with county governments. So there are many other layers of government, and certainly in the area of workplace safety, rail safety, and environmental protection, uh, people in Richmond have been pretty active on all fronts, but there's federal jurisdiction in all three of those areas, uh, and enforcement at the state and federal level will definitely have to be strengthened in some fashion going forward for a Chevron refinery to operate more safely, for the rail yard to operate safely, and for there to be less adverse environmental impact of industrial activity in Richmond on the neighbors, on the surrounding community. So often we're pitting, you know, working class Americans who just want their jobs against Greens or against people who are concerned with their communities. And we saw this play out in Richmond, too. If a company is the only thing that's preventing its worker from poverty, how do you combat that? How do you create those alliances? Well, it's a very big problem and posed quite starkly with the Trump administration's uh, dramatic uh, wooing in the last week or so of four top building trade union leaders wooing of the president of the Teamsters. Uh, There is a conservative wing of the American labor movement that is cheering his decisions on two pipeline projects that looks at his construction of a wall on the border with Mexico as one big jobs program. He's clearly, and I think in quite dangerous and savvy fashion, trying to uh, win away a section of organized labor which has a membership base dependent on constructing pipelines, nuclear power plants, working in refineries, coal mining, other extractive industries. And in the book, I describe how this plays out locally, and it can be pretty ugly. Locally, Chevron has been very deft at lining up labor allies from various building trades unions, which benefit from its contracting out. And the unions in return participate in its political action committee actually helped the company lobby to water down environmental and workplace safety regulation. And that's quite a contrast from the other union that I describe in the book, which is the United Steelworkers, which represents refinery operators. And that union bravely has tried to be part of Blue-Green Alliances, has tried to form coalitions with environmental groups like 350.org and Greenpeace and the Sierra Club, because its leadership and many of its members know that when workers in a refinery play, face workplace hazards, uh, there's an environmental pollution fallout as well. And uh, only by allying with the neighbors, with the people in the community, with the people in the environmental movement, 
uh, are workers going to be able to ensure that at companies like Chevron, they themselves have a safe workplace, not just one that provides a job under conditions that uh, can destroy life and health? What kind of lessons do you think that this community-based grassroots organizing structure has for other cities or other organizations? Well, I think at the moment there is a lot of doom and gloom and understandable dismay about the next four years of federal government activity under the Trump administration. Many states, people have long been frustrated by political gridlock. At the city level, however, in cities of varying sizes and all types around the country, there are much greater opportunities to bring about real change, and particularly in human-scale polities of the scale of Richmond. I mean, if you've got 100, 150,000 people, it's possible to build grassroots organizations with real face-to-face connections with a lot of people. Uh, it's possible to organize around issues and make changes at the city level that really contribute directly to improvements in people's lives. Uh, you can raise the minimum wage. Uh, You can reduce discrimination against uh, the formerly incarcerated. You can end, to some degree, police brutality and mistreatment of uh, people of color in a community like Richmond. Uh, You can uh, attract different kinds of jobs and development so that the results of development are are shared more equitably by people in a blue-collar community as opposed to uh, contributing to a process of gentrification that raises rents and forces people out, displaces them. So none of these problems are easy to tackle, but uh, they exist in as challenges in many other uh, cities around the country. So I think even those without an oil refinery and Richmond's colorful history can learn from the example of how progressives came together, united across class and race and ethnic lines, and uh, built a united front to, to make their town a better place. That's it for Smarty Pants. Next week is Valentine's Day, so why don't you subscribe your sweetheart to the podcast? Or if you don't have a sweetheart, and even if you do, we are accepting love letters at our email address, podcast at theamericanscholar.org. We're not picky, but uh, we would appreciate some fan mail. So thanks for listening, and until next week, take care and stay sharp. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.